Tonight we continue our survey of the doctrines of the Bible using the Heidelberg Catechism as a, as a guide for our study together. And we'll be beginning our um, sermon tonight by looking at a few verses from Romans chapter 5. So I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans 5. We'll be flipping back and forth mostly between Romans and Genesis tonight with a few other places in between. We'll begin reading Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21. Our focus tonight will be especially these first few verses, but it's helpful to see what Paul is doing in this passage as a whole as we step into it together this evening. So let's turn our attention now to God's Word, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's pray together as we begin. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for the glorious truth of the gospel. And even as we turn our attention tonight, especially to to our sin and misery, especially to the reality of our guilt, our, our hearts and our lips and our minds can't help but jump forward to the promise of redemption. Even as Paul does here, as he thinks about the, the, the depth of depravity that we have been plunged into through the first Adam, he, his mind jumps immediately to the last Adam and what has been undone and done by him. That he, we have been made righteous, that we have been justified, that that death in which we are trapped, under which we are rightly condemned, is exchanged now for eternal life. And Father, I ask today that as we turn our hearts and minds to these things, as we look back to see what we were made to be and what we have lost, let us also hold in our mind's eye what you have won for us. Let our meditations on our guilt not just be an exercise in in self-depreciation, but rather 
uh, something that draws us to greater praise and glory for what we have become, what we have been made in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you, I'm sure, if not all of you, have uh, read uh, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, and there's this great scene at the end of uh, the second book, Caspian, where Caspian is becoming the king of Narnia once again, and Aslan is telling Caspian and the other Telmarines that he was part of where they came from. Right? Where did the, these kings of Narnia come from? And of course, they assume, oh, we must come from this great royal race. And then Aslan tells them the story. Actually, your ancestors were pirates and brigands who were murdering each other and fighting, and, and they just accidentally found their way into this world and then became a nation which invaded Narnia, and that's where you come from. And Caspian, understandably, says, I was hoping for something a bit better than that. I thought there might be a better story. And here's what Aslan says to the young King Caspian now. He says, You come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. I've always loved that phrase. To be born of Adam, to be a man, a woman, a human being, is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. I think what Lewis is is pointing to is the fact that as we look at humanity, who we are, our story, there is an undeniable glory to it, a, a glory that was spoken of in Psalm 8 that we read and sang together earlier, and yet also this deep tragedy that we must understand as well. And Lewis, of course, is not the first person to pick up on this. This is a basic Christian teaching. It's something that we have to understand, in fact, if we are to understand the gospel. Which is why, as we've been looking at the Heidelberg Catechism, and it has been asking us, what do I need to know to understand the gospel, to have comfort in life and death in Jesus Christ? It says you need to know these three things. Your guilt, God's grace, and your gratitude. We've been looking a little bit already at the the teaching on our guilt, and tonight we want to continue that and to see especially how that guilt is wrapped up in the story of humanity. And so as we begin, I'd like to invite you to take your uh, Burgundy Psalter hymnals in the back, uh, page 873, you'll find the text of the catechism questions that we'll use as as our launching point here this evening. Lord's Day 3 is what we'll be looking at, questions 6, 7, and 8. Having talked about the reality of sin and misery, the reality that we live in a broken and fallen world and we are broken and fallen people, the question naturally comes up, did God create man so wicked and perverse? Here's the answer, no. God created man good and in His own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that He might truly know God, His Creator, love Him with all His heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for His praise and glory. Then where does man's corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam 
and Eve in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we're totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. We're going to meditate on those doctrines tonight, again, working especially through part of Romans 5 and the teachings of the book of Genesis. And we'll begin by, by looking to Genesis. Let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1, where we see in this crowning beauty the glory of humanity. The glory of humanity. Well, what is the glory of humanity? Those of you who, you know, kids, if you've heard about the creation story, uh, you'll know that there's this rhythm to God's work of creation, isn't there? Where, where he makes something, you know, the, the, the land, or he'll fill the land with animals, and then he'll say, it's good, it's good, it's good. And each day he makes something else, and it's good. And then he comes to the end of his work, and what does he make? Well, he makes us. He makes people. He makes men. When we say men, we don't just mean uh, boys, we mean boys and girls, men and women, human beings. God makes us, and when He makes us, He says, it is very good. There's something about us that is both part of creation and yet elevated in creation. There's a glory to humanity that is not true of other creatures. Think of your favorite animal. Horses or dolphins or dogs or cats or whatever it is, right? However wonderful they may be, there is a greater glory that you have over these animals, over these creatures. What is that glory? Well, the short way of answering that question is to say the difference between you and everything else is that you are made in the image of God. We are image bearers. We carry around with us the likeness and the image of God himself. We are not God. We're still creatures. We're still part of the creation. And yet, in a way, unlike the rest of creation, we are like God. We carry his likeness. We bear his image. Now, most of us are used to that kind of language. But what exactly does it mean? Ever thought about that? What, what, is, what, do we, what do we mean when we talk about the imagio dei, the, the fact that we are made in God's image or that we're dealing with other image bearers? We'll throw around this language a lot and often not be very clear on exactly what is involved. And there's actually a lot that we could say about this, but a, a good place to start is with Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Here's what we read there. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. You see where this language comes from. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then we have this little, almost poem, to close out this section. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Again, this image is not something that exists just for certain people, but for men and women. All people who were made were made in God's image. There's something special about that. 
There's actually a number of things involved in, in bearing God's image. But the first thing we see here is that it's tied up in some sense with what we are called to do. We have in verse 26 what is sometimes called the dominion mandate. God makes man for a purpose, to do something. He gives us a task. He gives us a mission. It's a furthering of what we see uh, in verse um, um, I I lost the verse, (laughs) where he calls us to be fruitful and to multiply. In verse 28, God blesses them after this, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And he goes on from there. God has placed us in the garden to do something, to to bear um, stewardship over creation. In fact, you can look at what God calls Adam and Eve to do in the garden, and you can see that what they are called to do falls into what we might think of as the categories of being a prophet, being a priest, and being a king. God first speaks to whom? To man. God speaks all things into being, but we don't see him speaking to the other creatures in the way that he does to Adam and Eve. And in fact, God makes Adam first, and then Adam's job is to speak God's word to his wife, to Eve. And when things go wrong, what we find is a failure of Adam to do his prophetic work, to speak the word of the Lord, to guard the the garden through the command that God has given. But there was originally this purpose, that, that man was to receive and give God's word. There was also a task of being a priest. I won't take the time to draw all of this out, but if you look at how, how Genesis is spoken of, how Eden is spoken of through the Bible, what you see is that Eden is presented to us as being like a temple. Or actually, the temple is meant to point us back to what God made in Eden. And the task that Adam is given is the same task that was given to the priest who served in the temple. They were to guard and to keep it. This was part of what Adam was supposed to do. And finally, as we see here in verse 26, there's a sense in which man is called to exercise dominion, not as a despot, not as a tyrant, but as a steward, as a king, to rule over these things that God has made. Psalm 8 echoed that language as well. God has made all of these things with the work of his hands. He's made us, and then he's put his work under us. There's a glory there, isn't there, in what we're called to do. This is part of what it means to be made in the image of God, that we are called to this work of prophets, priests, and kings to exercise dominion over what God has made. Now, how are we to do that? Well, this is where when the Bible talks about the image of God, it points not just to the things we're called to do, but fundamentally, even before that, to who we are to what we possess. And there are really three attributes that the Bible points out as being part of the image of God. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. In fact, if someone were to ask you, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does it mean when God says in verse 27, he made man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. The answer we could give biblically is, God made them with knowledge, with righteousness, and with holiness. Now, where do we find that in this text? Well, we don't see it so much in Genesis. Really, where the Bible helps us to understand these attributes of the image of God is in the New Testament, 
When Paul, especially, is looking back at what man has lost and is looking forward to what God is renewing us into, and hear what he says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, for example. Colossians 3.10. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The image in which we were made is being renewed now for those who have been redeemed, and part of that renewal is a renewal of knowledge. Listen as well to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. So Colossians 3.10 talks about knowledge. Ephesians 4.24 talks about righteousness and holiness. And to put on the new self, notice the same language, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the image of God is not only contained in what we do, but in who we are. In this knowledge, this righteousness, and this holiness that God has made us with. And you can see how those things map onto, in different ways, the task that we are given. Knowledge is tied to that prophetic task. Knowing God. Knowing ourselves. Making God known in His creation. Magnifying and glorifying His name. Holiness is tied to the work of priests. To be set apart to be sacred, to guard, and to keep that which God has made as he has made it. And of course, righteousness, that by which kings are to rule, the justice that they are to bring. And so all of these things fit together, don't they? This is part of the glory of of humanity, that we are made in the image of God, and that means we are given a certain task. We are given dominion over God's creation. We are to function as prophets, priests, and kings in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And all of this is oriented towards something. It's leading us somewhere. Because the image of God has to do not just with what we do, and not even just with who we are, but also with what we are made for. Listen to how uh, question six of the Heidelberg Catechism frames it. It says, we're made in the image of God. God made us good. He didn't make us bad. He didn't make us perverse and wicked. That wasn't part of his creation. God made us in his image so that they might truly know God. There's that knowledge. Love him, there's that righteousness, with all their heart, and live with him in holiness, in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. That's what you are made to be. You are made to exercise dominion over creation, to cultivate, to tend, to protect, to bring beauty and extend the the borders of God's glorious kingdom. That's what Adam and Eve were called to do in the garden. And they were given knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And they were to walk in those things, to delight in those things, to value those things. They were made ultimately to know God. Not only to walk with Him in the cool of the day, but one day to, to dwell with Him in a state where that could not be changed. To live in an Eden that could not be fallen or destroyed. That's what man was made for. Now, even as we describe that, you may have noticed that doesn't quite describe the week that I had this last week, and probably not the week that you had. The work that we do now looks very different. And even when we try to do some of these things that we're called to do, what do we find? Well, there are those thorns and thistles, as we talked about this morning. 
There's very real fallenness. There's very real brokenness. This glory of what we were made to do and to be, what we were made for, is not what we experience now. So what happened to you? What happened to me? What happened to humanity? Why are we not blinded by this glory as we look at one another, as we look at our world? Well, this is where Romans can help us to make sense of the story. If we look back at Romans chapter 5, Paul summarizes the problem. He says in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. What is Paul talking about in this passage? Well, he's painting a picture for us of the tragedy of our humanity. That what we were made for is not what we have now. And we see it in in each of those areas. What we are called to do in exercising dominion over God's creation, in living in the paradise that He has made, what we are called to do has been undone. We are now faced with a task that we cannot finish. The message of the gospel is not that we as, as people can, can pick up and do better than Adam did. In fact, we have only added to Adam's sin all of our own sins as well. Our transgressions have added to what he has done, and so death has spread to all men because all sinned. So we are rightly condemned both because we're in Adam and because we follow Adam. We imitate Adam. We are like Adam. And what that means is that the creation that we were called to steward and to lead into flourishing is now, Paul will say in chapter 8 of Romans, groaning. It feels the brokenness. It feels the weight. It is longing for and leaning towards redemption. The creation looks to a new creation. Because into this creation, we have brought sin and misery and death. When people are confronted with those things, the reality of sin, the reality of misery, the horror of cancer, the scourge of plagues, the evil of the Holocaust, what do we naturally do? We point the finger at God and say, how dare you? How could you possibly allow these things to happen? How could you introduce these things into the world? There's so much arrogance in that tendency, isn't there? Because it's missing the very point. God is not the one who brought these things into the world. We are the ones who have brought these things into the world. And even those of us who pat ourselves on the back and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as Hitler. We always set the bar really high for ourselves, don't we? At least I'm not as bad as Hitler. And yet look around at your life. Look around at your relationships. Just look at your family. The people that you probably do love more than anyone else and that you should love perfectly. And yet, have you loved them perfectly? 
Let's go back to what we saw from Matthew 22 last time. This law and the prophets can be summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Have you loved others half as much as you love yourself? None of us can answer yes to that question. We all love ourselves supremely and we try to fit other people in as we're able. That's a mark of the tragedy of our humanity. That we have brought sin and suffering into the world. And all of the wicked things that we experience are not there because God was negligent or because God is evil, but because we, by our sin, have marred what He has perfectly made. And that's represented not just around us, not just in our circumstances, not just in the environment, but in ourselves. Remember that central to the image of God is who we are. We were made in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. And yet now that image is marred. It's disfigured. As our forefathers in the faith have wrestled with this, this is how they'll speak about the image of God. I think sometimes we miss this in our, in our discussions today. We just assume, well, we're made in the image of God and we still have that same image with no change at all. Well, there are probably two mistakes we can fall into here. One is to think that because of the fall, the image of God is gone. And that therefore, as we deal with each other, we're just dealing with other animals. We can dehumanize each other. We can manipulate each other. We can exert power over each other. A lot of people have that view. You as a, as a person are nothing more than a really complex meat machine or just another animal. That's the materialist view of the universe. That's not the biblical view. Even after the fall, there is something glorious about humanity. There's something that sets apart being human from being any other type of creature. You still have the image of God. Don't fall into that materialist lie. And yet on the other side, we can somehow think that really not much has changed. We still carry the image of God without distortion, and maybe the task that we have is really just to realize how wonderful and special we are as people made in God's image. There's something in between for us here. The biblical picture is that in the fall, there was a real fall. We really did lose something. Paradise really has been lost. And that's not just a loss outside of us, it's a loss of something inside. Let's just think about those, those three categories, knowledge, righteousness, holiness. We no longer know God as we ought to know God. We both suppress the knowledge that we do have, and we lack the knowledge that we need. We are not walking with God in the cool of the day. And so we starve for lack of knowledge. Outside of Christ, we don't know either God or ourselves. And so we, we suffer and we struggle because that image has been marred. We do know there is a God, Romans 1 says, but we don't know him as we ought. At best, we know him as a distant creator, but not as our redeemer in and of ourselves. That image is disfigured. The holiness, the being set apart, has now been turned on its head. Because of our sin, God's holiness demands not that we dwell with Him in holiness, but that we can no longer dwell in His presence. We are cast out and sent east of Eden to live apart from God, 
for our very safety, because to be in God's presence as a fallen, sinful, unredeemed person is only to come into the presence of judgment and condemnation. The image is disfigured. And even our best righteousness is, the Bible says, as filthy rags. Sometimes we as humans can treat each other with some measure of decency, some measure of kindness. There can be a kind of of horizontal ethical behavior, of course. We can see it in, in soldiers that lay down their lives for their comrades and parents that care for their children and people who serve their country. And we're grateful for those things. And yet you peel beneath the surface and what do you find? That even those best of things are done with no reference to God with no desire for His glory, with no consciousness that every breath that person has breathed has come as a gift from God. And so often, even the good things we do for each other, there's manipulation, there's selfishness, there's reputation, there's pride, there's all these other things mixed in. Our righteousness is not really righteous. There's a sense of that righteousness that we all long for, that we all look for, that we hold each other to, and yet none of us possess. The image is there, but it has been disfigured, like a, like a painting that has had mud splash all over it. And that's our condition. As we're born into this world, you were made in the image of God. There's a glory in you because of that, and yet that glory is dimmed. That image is marred. And so what we're made for is unfulfilled. We don't truly know God as our creator. We don't truly love him with all our hearts. We don't, we don't live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. And that's almost where the catechism leaves us, but not quite. Because you may have noticed in question eight, there's that wonderful final phrase, which again is leaning us towards the gospel. It asks, are we really that bad? Are we really so fallen? Has, has our nature been so poisoned that we can't do any good? And it answers, yes. It's true. It's that bad. Unless, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. And that's what Paul talks about as he moves on through this chapter, isn't it? That in Adam, our story is one of glory lost. It's a tragedy, ultimately. It's a fall from grace. But the Christian story is not a tragic story. It's actually a comedy. Not in the sense that we use that term. We use a comedy to mean you know, a funny movie where you laugh a lot. But uh, classically speaking, a, a, a tragedy is a story that ends in sadness and loss. A comedy is a story that ends well, that ends with happiness. And in that sense, the Christian story is a comedy. This is why Dante, when he writes his books, some of which are going through hell and all of these terrible things, he still calls it the divine comedy. Because he recognizes the the movement of the story of redemption. That what we have and what we have lost is regained in Christ. That image that was marred, how was it spoken of by Paul? Spoken of as being renewed, of being restored. And if you are in Christ, if you have been born again by the Spirit of God, you have a new life. You are no longer in Adam, in that sense. You are now in Christ, the last Adam, the second Adam. 
The image of God that is marred in us is being painstakingly restored and cleaned and renewed so that it can once again shine forth the glory of God. And the purpose for which we were made is what we are moving towards. We experience it now in some measure to to have communion with God and one day we will have that communion perfectly and perpetually because Christ has done the work that we failed to do. And because of that work, we can now have our, uh, our knowledge, our righteousness and our holiness restored and we can look forward in faith and with confidence to that great purpose of living with Him for all eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever shall believe in him shall have eternal life. We thank you that through the one man's righteousness, that we are made righteous. That that death which has entered into the world, that death which each of us here today will undoubtedly taste, is not the final answer. It's not the final thing. But that for those who are in Christ, for those who have been born again by the Spirit of God, that there is eternal righteousness. And so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray this in His name. Amen.